Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, open it to 1 Corinthians 11. As we just read, we will be in verses 27 through 34. And as you turn there, I want to tell you uh, a story from my childhood. So I grew up in uh, a city called Baytown, Texas. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, they had two high schools there. And, uh, and so uh, the uh, crosstown rival, the unfortunately named Robert E. Lee High School, and, uh, and so they were better at just about everything than us. And so I went to a school that was a little more academic. They went to a school, or the other uh, school was a little bit more known for its athletic prowess. And so they were better in football. They were better in basketball. They were better in uh, baseball. They were better in uh, soccer. But we, my alma mater, Ross S. Sterling, had them where it really counts, water polo. And... Uh, in fact, we were uh, kind of a, uh, a Texas high school uh, water polo uh, powerhouse. And, uh, and so I looked this up uh, for this sermon. Uh, since the 90s, which is when I was in high school, since the 90s, uh, my alma mater, the, between the boys and the girls, have won state 14 times. Uh, and then another 10 times, they have uh, come in second. And so, again, this, they're this uh, water polo powerhouse. And, uh, and so I thought that was pretty cool whenever I was in uh, high school, the idea of winning a, a state championship. And I happened to know uh, the water polo coach because I knew his uh, daughter. And so one day I went and asked him, can I play in a water polo game? Now, the problem with this is I didn't play water polo. I played tennis and I played uh, soccer. And the uh, second problem with that is that I didn't know how to play water polo. I had never watched a match. Uh, I had never played in a game. I didn't know the rules, anything like that. And then the third problem with that is my swimming is very functional. Uh, that's pretty much it. It's not elegant. It's not athletic. And so I grew up near bayous and stuff where the goal, if you fall in the water, is to get out of the water as quickly as possible. So my swimming reflects that. And so if the goal of water polo is just to swim out, uh, then uh, I would have been very good at that. Uh, so I just assumed he would say no. But he said, I tell you what, if you will get a petition uh, and pass it around the school and get 100 signatures, I will let you play in a game of water polo. By the way, I might accidentally say Marco Polo. I, I mixed those up one day. Uh, and uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about water polo. And uh, so... Uh, so I said, I will get 200 signatures. And he said, 100 is fine. And, uh, and so, but, but I did. So I went around, I was like a politician, right? You know, just uh, shaking hands, kissing babies, all that kind of stuff, trying to get a, a petition uh, with my fellow students to let me play in a water polo game. And I got like 250 or so uh, signatures. I presented it to the coach, and he said, great, you can play. We play our crosstown rival. Uh, Robert E. Lee in, I think, three weeks or something like that, and so I'll let you play in that game. I said, great, do you want me to come to practice or anything? He said, no, just show up. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, that's great. So I show up there. I'm in the locker room, and, uh, and I, I begin to realize I've made a bit of a mistake when the coach says, hey, Jeff, go in that pile uh, and pick out a Speedo. To this point, I didn't even realize they wore Speedos whenever they played water polo. And so I think this, this is a problem because now I have to wear a Speedo in public. Not just any Speedo, but a used Speedo. And, uh, and so, but I did it, you know, high school 
uh, athletic glory takes sacrifice. And so, uh, so I did it, and I go and I get one of those Speedos, and then I get one of those sweet little water polo hats that they give. And then we have to line up, and I don't know why we have to line up. We have to line up, and the judge, uh, the judge, the official, the referee, whatever they call him, uh, he comes in there, and he inspects everyone's toes. Why? Because uh, apparently water polo is like prison rules. And so underwater, uh, it is pretty common in the water polo world to do these submergible shanks with your toenails. You just shave your toenail into a shank and then you just kick somebody under the water. And so they have to inspect your toes. And so again, I think, I've made a mistake. This is not... When I play tennis, they don't ever check our feet or whatever. And, uh, and so, uh, so that was my... My second sort of warning. And then we line up to go out into the natatorium, and uh, you can just hear this crowd. You can hear this murmur out there. And, uh, and so uh, my teammates, uh, they're all uh, wondering, you know, what in the world is happening? And, uh, and I'm like, what? And they're like, there's a crowd here. We're not used to that. Apparently there's no, you know, water polo equivalent of Friday Night Lights or something like that. And that's when it hits me. I had passed around a uh, petition <laughs> telling all of my friends, hey, come watch Jeff drown. And they thought, that's fun. And so, uh, so the, the natatorium was filled with my friends, uh, boys and girls that I go to class with, teachers even, uh, all wondering if I'm going to get killed. And, uh, and so that's when I realized I have really, really made a huge uh, error of, uh, of judgment and uh, and so uh, th- that, was my, uh, uh, that was my experience. I-, I end up regret the decision, but I'm, I'm, I'm already locked in, and uh, so I just have to go with it. And so I end up uh, playing in the game. I don't know how well I played. I-, I know that I clutched the side of the pool quite a bit, which is probably not legal, uh, but they let me do it, uh, and uh, it, was, it was horrible. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. I almost died, and uh, that's the end. That's the end of that story. I tell you that story because this was a, I thought this would be fun, right? This would be this fun little story that I could tell my kids or something, how I was on a, you know, a state championship water polo team or something like that. So what was supposed to be this real fun, encouraging uh, thing had the exact opposite effect. I almost died, and I was certainly humiliated uh, as a result of it. And that's kind of what our text is about this morning. Uh, last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and we saw how in uh, the city of Corinth the, the Corinthians are abusing this meal. Uh, they're not taking it in a worthy manner. They are uh, showing divisiveness and pride and preference and selfishness and all of these sorts of things. And as a result, what was intended to be this real fun, joyful occasion was having the exact opposite effect. It was having these tragic consequences. It was resulting actually in their judgment. So let's pray. And then we'll dive in, no, no pun intended. Ask you first just to pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would uh, long to obey his word this morning. And then will you pray a similar prayer for those around you, whether you know them or not. Friends, family, strangers, whatever it might be, that the Lord would give us collectively, his, his, uh, his church, uh, a love for Scripture and a desire to not only hear but to heed the word this morning.
lastly, for me, for faithfulness, for boldness. So, Father, we're grateful for this text. Just confess that it seems to be a bit of a strange text. It certainly um, doesn't seem to fit uh, our immediate context. And so I pray for your help that we would see beyond the the surface uh, and see where it might actually be really relevant uh, profoundly So for uh, for us, for our time and place. And uh, so I pray that you would help us this morning, that your spirit would... Uh, move within us and glorify your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. We'll begin with that. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. All right, this week, uh, Jared, as well as Tim, is not here. And so don't tell Jared I said this, but last week I thought he did a superb job. In, uh, in walking through our previous passage in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the Lord's Supper. And he talked about the fact that there were these divisions at the table, uh, probably these divisions based on social strata. The rich are cutting in line, they're kind of the, the haves or neglecting the have-nots, and so we saw that. So there was this abuse of this sacrament, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this ordinance that was given for the edification and encouragement of the body is being used to divide uh, the body. It's this meal which is intended by its very nature and the meaning of the meal was intended to unify the church, uh, to signify the, uh, the, the church members' co- communion not only with Christ, not only this vertical communion that we experience, but also this horizontal com- uh, communion that we experience with each other. Uh, it was uh, actually having the opposite effect. It was being used to divide on the basis of pride, which is the opposite virtue that the meal should instill in the body. Right? After all, the meal is a picture of the death of Christ. And the death of Christ is the antithesis of pride. It's, it's the ultimate expression of humility and self-sacrifice. And all of that was last week. And that's really important. That context is really important because our passage picks up where we left off last week and even logically connects to it. Notice the therefore in this verse. In other words, our passage is going to flow out of the previous as an implication. In light of what we read last week, therefore, he's going to say what he says this week. Because of what we talked about last week, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Let's start with the word unworthy. First thing to note here, this isn't about whether or not you are personally worthy to eat this meal. All right? This may be a spoiler alert for you, but you, in and of yourself, by your own merits, by your own virtue, you are not worthy to eat this meal. This meal is not about your worthiness. It's about Christ's worthiness. So this isn't really about who. It's more about how. It isn't about who is worthy to take the meal, but rather how to take it in a worthy manner. As uh, New Testament scholar David Garland says, although no one is worthy of the Lord's Supper, one can eat it worthily. Although no one is worthy of the Lord's Supper, one can eat it worthily. Now, in Greek, the, the word unworthy, it's kind of a fun word, anoxios, anoxios. And unworthy might actually be a uh, not the best translation. It might be a bit misleading as a translation. Inappropriate might be a word that's a little bit more 
helpful. So think about showing up in church wearing the aforementioned Speedo, right? Or if you show up to a job interview and you're wearing a tuxedo t-shirt and jorts or something uh, like that. There's something about your choice of attire that doesn't fit the occasion. It's inappropriate, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. The behavior of the Corinthians doesn't fit the occasion. It's inappropriate for the occasion. In fact, it's the very antithesis of the occasion. So what's the result? Well, he says there are consequences. Namely, those who do such a thing will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. In other words, by sinning against the symbol, you're sinning against the reality that that symbol points to. All right? Let let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine that my wife, uh, Casey, imagine that she and I have a fight. Not that we ever do, but hypothetically, imagine that we're having a fight. And it's a real barn burner. I don't even know what that means. But it's a barn burner, and, uh, and so we're screaming at each other. And in the midst of that argument, I take off my ring, and I look my wife right in the eyes, and I take that ring and I throw it in the trash, right? Now, technically, I've just thrown away a piece of silver, right? My, my wedding ring isn't the, you know, the one ring to rule them all or something like that. It doesn't give me magical powers. It's just a silver ring from James Avery, and yet that action has a much more profound significance in that context. In that moment, I'm saying something. By what I'm doing with my my ring, I'm saying this is what I want to do with our marriage. So it has this much more uh, profound symbolism. I've sinned against my wife. I've communicated non-verbally something about our marriage. Or imagine that I'm on a trip with some buddies and we decide, you know, we've, we've got the evening to ourselves. We decide to head down to the bar. But before we do, we make this pact. We decide to take off our wedding rings. We make some joke about whatever happens in Omaha stays in Omaha or something like that. In that case, you would say, I'm guilty concerning my marriage. That action means something. And that's what's happening here in Corinth. The Lord's Supper is intended to be this symbol. It's this memorial. It's this symbolic action of Christ's self-sacrifice. And the meaning of Christ's self-sacrifice is, at least in part, to unify his bride. So when it's being used in a way to divide the bride for the sake of selfish motivations, that isn't just a sin against the meal, it's a sin against the meaning of the meal and thus against Christ himself. This meal, the Lord's Supper, communion, this meal represents the new covenant. So when we sin against that meal, we're sinning against the covenant And thus you're sinning against the one who made the covenant. In other words, what takes place here each and every week at Parkway, at the end of our service, as we do communion, what takes place each and every weekend as we gather together doesn't just say something about us. It does say something about us. We're Christians. We love Jesus. It does say something about us, but it doesn't just say something about us. It also should say something about Jesus, and it does say something about Jesus. The way we take the meal, the way we gather the way we worship, all of those things are intended to demonstrate something about who Jesus is and what he's done. So selfishness or division doesn't just reflect negatively on us, it actually reflects negatively upon Christ. It blasphemes him. It paints a caricature of him. Our selfishness seems to indicate that Christ himself is selfish, when in reality he's the very opposite of that. So what's happening there in Corinth, and by extension in other churches with pride and selfishness and preference and division and so forth, is a blasphemy against 
Christ. It undermines his death and resurrection. So in light of that, look at verses 28 through 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in light of the seriousness, in light of the significance of the sacrament, Paul gives this command. Actually, it's a two-part command. Part one is that you should examine yourself. And part two is that you should discern the body. Let's look at the first one. What does Paul mean by let a person examine himself? Well, think back to the, the original institution of the Lord's Supper. Right? You have Christ's last meal there with his disciples in an upper room. It's a Passover dinner. Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And he says, one of you will betray me. Do you remember what everyone's response is? Everyone responds and says, well, not me, right? I love that they respond that by asking a question. And that question is very personal. It's very private. It's very self-centered, all right? In that moment, they're all concerned, is it me? Not I, is it? What strikes me about that is how selfish that response seems. They're only concerned with themselves in that moment. It reminds me of a time... I might have mentioned this story at some point in the past. But my family was on vacation, and we're driving down the road, and our Toyota van caught on fire. So my dad pulls over, and he yells at my brother, who was maybe nine or ten at the time, to get my baby sister, who was maybe two or three. He yells at my brother to get my baby sister out of the car. I'm riding between them, so I was maybe uh, you know six or seven or something like that. And uh, so he yells for my brother, get my sister out of her car seat. The only problem was that my brother was like 50 yards out in the desert, all right? And so before that car was even to a stop, he was uh, out in the desert just uh, uh, completely oblivious to anyone else in the world. He would later say that he was being selfless, that he wanted to preserve the Ashley name, but I I have my doubts. (laughs) So anyway, that kind of reminds me of what's happening around the upper room. Uh, everyone just protecting themselves. Everyone just looking out for their own interests. And that was what was happening in Corinth. So Paul tells them to examine themselves. Now when we read about examining ourselves, we might read this through our contemporary lenses. We, we, we have a tendency to psychologize things. Uh, and uh, we have a tendency to, to think that this calls for some sort of excessive introspection whereby, whereby you just think about how depraved you are before you take the meal. And if you read this passage through that lens... We'll end up examining ourselves by asking if we looked at something we shouldn't have looked at this past week or said something we shouldn't have said or thought something we shouldn't have said. But that isn't really the meaning of the passage. Those are good things. You should ask those questions as you're partaking of the Lord's Supper. But that isn't really the meaning. Uh, That isn't what Paul means here whenever he says that we should examine ourselves. Is introspection in general a good thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we tell people that if they're in unrepentant sin, do not take communion. But that isn't really the particular focus of this particular passage. Rather, this passage is asking people to examine themselves as it relates to the meal. In particular, are you taking this meal for the worship of Christ? Or are you just doing it out of a sense of begrudging obligation? Are you eating the meal With consideration of the community, are you taking into account the fact that you're a part of a larger body? Or are you just doing it privately, solely for your own benefit, completely oblivious and unaware of who is and what is around you? Are you actually celebrating communion or are you just satisfying your own appetite? That's not a hugely important question in our 
context because we could just give a little cracker and a little shot of juice uh, or wine. Uh, but that's the first command, to examine yourselves. Are your motivations in taking this meal aligned with the actual meaning of the meal? And second, Paul says that we are to discern the body. Here I think he's talking about the church body. Remember what the Corinthians are doing. They're engaging in this sort of segregated communion. The rich get to eat, but the poor don't, right? The rich have servants, so they don't have to work out in the field or whatever it might be. So they get to the church early, and they're eating up all the food. Meanwhile, the poor are having to actually do all of the work. And so they get to the church late, and there's nothing left uh, to eat. That's what the Corinthians are doing. And that was actually very culturally appropriate. That actually works uh, in Corinth. That actually works in the Roman Empire. In fact, you have a lot of uh, ancient Roman authors who wrote about how different guests at parties would be served different qualities and quantities of food according to their social rank. So that's fine within the, the Roman Empire. That's not countercultural at all, but it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. That's Paul's point. So I think discerning the body means to recognize one of the fundamental meanings of this meal is that it should destroy all of those divisions that we as uh, men and women tend to create. In Christ, there is no Greek or Jew. And thus in the church, there should be no division on the basis of Jews and Gentiles or between men and women or rich or poor or white and black or urban and rural or educated or less educated. This meal, at least in part, is about how we have been united and what unites us. And so discerning the body means that we should remind ourselves that Christ has torn down the wall of hostility that separates races and genders and socioeconomic uh, classes and so forth. Let's keep going. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. All right, this is my favorite verse in the entire passage. Not in the entire Bible, but in the, the, the entire passage. Because it's just so shocking and unexpected. Because the Corinthians are abusing the supper, some of them are dying. All right, that's crazy. But it's true because this isn't just a normal meal, all right? There's something different about this meal from all other meals that you eat. It means more than all other meals. So there are consequences when we treat it with disdain. Now, those consequences have been interpreted in, in uh, three different ways uh, historically. When it's talking about getting weak and ill and dying, there are three different ways that uh, people have talked about that. The first one is to say that this isn't talking about physical uh, sickness and death. It's just talking about spiritual. Right? Some people want to lessen kind of the weight and the gravity and the kind of the surprise factor of the text. And so they, they attempt to kind of make this a little bit less extreme and say that what Paul's talking about here is spiritual weakness or spiritual death. However, I don't think that that actually has the effect that they want it to have. I don't think it means what they think it means. All right? In fact, I think that actually makes it even more shocking. All right? If it's actually about spiritual death, think about this for a second. If it's actually about spiritual death, then Paul has just said that people are being condemned. They're being damned. They're dying spiritually because of their unworthy eating of the meal. So it doesn't really make it any easier or less shocking Regardless, that doesn't seem to fit the language and context as well as saying that this is actual uh, physical death. So a second view is to say, yes, this is physical. People are physically getting ill. They are physically dying. But that's just a simple fact of nature. 
Some people are getting ill. Some people are dying because they're eating and drinking too much. Right? They're getting too drunk or whatever it might be. Others are getting sick and dying because they're getting there late and they're not getting any food. And obviously if you don't eat and you don't drink for a period of time, then you die. All right? So that certainly fits within the context of if you eat too much and drink too much, you could die. If you don't eat enough or don't drink enough, you could uh, die. But notice that doesn't really fit the context of the passage, right? The context doesn't suggest that people getting ill and dying is just some sort of natural consequence, but rather it's a, a form of God's disciplinary judgment. You see the language of judgment throughout the text. So I think the third view is actually best, that people are actually getting physically ill, and they're physically dying, that's not just a natural consequence, you reap what you sow sort of thing. That is a form of God's disciplinary judgment. Now that probably strikes most of us as being somewhat strange. To be fair, lots of the Bible probably strikes most of us as strange. But that's only because we've been more influenced by contemporary culture than we have by Scripture. As 21st century Westerners, we tend to have these two sort of separate categories. They're almost like these two separate silos. You have physical and then you have the spiritual, and near the two shall meet. So if I have a spiritual issue, I might go see a pastor. If I have a physical issue, I'd never go talk to a pastor. I'd go see a doctor. And there's no sort of overlap in that uh, mindset, according to kind of a, a more Western sort of way uh, of, uh, of viewing it. And that's a very common cultural dichotomy, but it's not a biblical dichotomy. Instead of there being these two independent silos, the physical and the spiritual, uh, those things that through a biblical perspective are more like a Venn diagram where there's this profound overlap and what happens in one can absolutely affect the other. For instance, if you get mad at your spouse and you yell at them, is that primarily a physical or a spiritual problem? Well, it's primarily a spiritual problem. That's sin. And yet, what if you haven't slept in 48 hours? Or if you hadn't eaten for a couple of days. Well, then those are physical things. Not sleeping, not eating. That's a physical thing. But it obviously could have a profound spiritual consequence, right? You're, you, tend to be, uh, uh, you tend to be more on edge. You tend to be more picky. You tend to be more tense and, uh, and so forth. So physical things can make it more likely for you to sin. Or vice versa. Right? Is anxiety, is that primarily a condition of the body or the soul? Well, it's primarily a condition of the soul, and yet every one of us has probably been anxious at some point with physical manifestations. You have butterflies in the stomach, you have, you're nauseous, you have elevated pr blood pressure, whatever it might be. And you see this connection between the spiritual and the physical throughout the Old Testament. For instance, uh, Elisha. The prophet with an S-H, uh, not a J. Elisha had a servant. His name was Gehazi. And he coveted riches. And he coveted uh, 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 certain uh, possessions. And he lied about it. And so what happened? Anybody remember? He was cursed with leprosy. Or when David sinned, what happens to Israel? God afflicts the entire nation with a plague. Or speaking of David, he writes in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. All day long. Or Psalm 31.10. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Or Psalm 38. 1 through 8. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me. 
and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. All right, so you see this profound overlap between David's sin and physical manifestations. And that pattern isn't just something we see in the Old Testament. What happens to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts when they lie to the apostles and they attempt to lie to the Spirit? They're struck down. They're struck down dead. So am I saying that any time you get sick, it's because of personal sin that you've committed? No. But am I saying that occasionally it might be and that we shouldn't ignore it as if that uh, possibility is actually impossible? So that seems to be what's happening in Corinth. Some Corinthians are taking the meal in an unworthy manner. They're being divisive. They're being proud. They're being arrogant, whatever it might be. And as a result, some are getting sick and even Dying. In other words, a meal that is supposed to signify life is actually bringing death. Remember that uh, 1989 classic Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Right? At the very end, the true grail brings about immortality. What does the false grail bring? Death, right? It's fatal, right? True communion, likewise, represents life, but to abuse the meal, as the Corinthians are doing, invites divine judgment. So how do you avoid such judgment? Verses 31 through 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here's the way to avoid this divine judgment. It's by judging yourself. We've already seen this before when Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves earlier in the passage. I think this means the same thing. To judge yourself truly is to examine yourself, to examine your motivations for eating the meal in light of the meaning of the meal. Now, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to judging, there are three different forms of judgment that are mentioned in these two verses. Uh, Unfortunately, you can't see all of the nuances uh, in English as well as you can in Greek. But the first type of judgment that he mentions is self-judgment. We just mentioned that, to examine yourself. The second form of judgment is where Paul mentions that we are judged by the Lord. And notice, what does that judgment entail? It entails God's discipline. I think that refers to the discipline of the previous verse. The judgment or the discipline of physical sickness and physical weakness and maybe even physical death. And that judgment, notice, is a form of discipline. It's not a manifestation of God's wrath. It's a manifestation of his love. It's intended to lead us to joy, to lead us to avoid the third type of judgment that you see in this passage, which is that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's the third form of judgment, which is condemnation, eternal judgment. So there are three levels of judgment. Worst of all, obviously, is eternal condemnation. The Bible clearly says that if you're in Christ, you are no longer under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in order to avoid that, God gives certain means of grace. God disciplines his children. But if we want to avoid God's discipline, you can judge yourself. You can examine yourself. You can walk in confession and repentance and pursue holiness. So so Paul is saying that God's judgment of the Corinthians by means of sickness and death is actually a form of divine discipline 
with the goal of repentance, to keep his children from condemnation. That's a huge thing for us to recognize. We're so hardwired to think of, of God in two very two-dimensional sort of reductionistic categories. On one hand, some of us might think of God as some sort of distant, cruel tyrant who just punishes people mercilessly. That's how some of us might think of God. We might be hardwired to do that. Or we might think of him as some sort of an old grandfather type figure, right? He doesn't discipline. He doesn't punish. He just hands out, you know, Werther's Originals and ice cream or something. Both of those, though, are caricatures. In reality, God is not a merciless tyrant. He's a good father. He gives good gifts. But at the same time, sometimes those gifts hurt. And we see that in this passage. Sometimes it's necessary that he breaks our hands, lest we cling too tightly to our idols and chase them to our own destruction. And that's what's happening here in Corinth. So as it relates to us, we have two different options in obeying this text. Not only as it relates to communion, but just holiness in general. First, you can judge yourself. You can examine yourself. You can confess your sins. You can walk in repentance. Or we can hope that God breaks us. Kind of like in a movie where a, you know, a detective or a hero or something like that says, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. Which were the Corinthians choosing at this point? The hard way. All right? They're forcing God's hand uh, in regards to discipline. The problem is many of us do the same thing. Many of us look at God. He says you can do this the easy way or the hard way. And we say I'll take the hard way. All right. I would imagine many of us in this room have found ourselves in certain seasons where we're chasing some false god, we're chasing some idol, we're chasing some sin, at least for a season, until God begins to oppose us. He put obstacle. He puts obstacles in our path. Maybe it was, maybe that obstacle was a sickness. Maybe it was relational conflict. Maybe it was the loss of a job. Uh, maybe it was the loss of a spouse. Uh, whatever it uh, it might be. Maybe it was divorce. The one of a billion other tools at God's disposal. At God, at some point, God said to you. I'm going to let you taste the bitterness of sin. And it was that taste that finally awakened you to repent. So let me ask you this question. Is there any place in your life where you are walking toward judgment? Where you're failing to examine yourself? Where you're failing to judge yourself? Where you're failing to repent and you're just chasing after sin carelessly, oblivious? Maybe there are relationships in your life that are broken and need to be restored. Maybe your marriage is on fire and you refuse to do anything about it at all. Maybe it's some historic struggle with lust or anger. Is there any area of your life where you're inviting God's discipline because you refuse to discipline yourself? You're inviting God's judgment because you refuse to judge yourself. In other words, you have two options if you're a child of God. You can discipline yourself or you could be disciplined by God. I absolutely recommend the former. Let's keep going. Verses 33 through 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Here's the final application of, uh, of this section, a reminder that this meal is different. You see something in, uh, in the Old Testament one of the purposes of, uh, of the Passover meal is that there's supposed to be a time when uh, your children would gather and they would look and they would ask the question, you know, 
uh, mommy, daddy, why is this meal different? You'll get a chance even to say that uh, this afternoon as we uh, partake of um, baptism after the services. Your child will ask, why are we sticking around after services? Why is that person getting in the water? You get to talk about why this afternoon is different from most afternoons. All right? And so with the Passover, though, there was in particular, there was this moment where the child would ask, why is this meal different? And Paul says the same is true for communion. This meal is different from all other meals. For most meals, the primary goal is just to be fed. That's not the case with this meal. This meal is different and so it should look different. It isn't about just satisfying your physical hunger, which is a good thing, again, because we just give you a little cracker and a little shot. It isn't just about satisfying your physical hunger so much as it is sharing and fellowship together and satiating our spiritual hunger. So Paul tells the Corinthians to wait for one another. Don't start eating just because you get here first or because you drive a Mercedes or because you give a lot of money to the church or because you have a fancy title or whatever it might be. In fact, he says, if you can't wait, just eat before you come so that when you come together... It will be for joy rather than judgment. This is a really strange text uh, for a lot of reasons, mostly because we're so removed from this context. Right? I mean, sometimes you, you have a sermon uh, like in 1 Corinthians 6 and it talks about sexual morality or something like that and it hits every context, every culture, everyone just naturally sees the application. Um, a sermon on anger or pride or whatever it might be transcends all times and places. But Paul is highlighting a problem that we don't seem to have, at least on the surface, right? No one is getting drunk on communion wine here. Right? No one is showing up early eating all the communion crackers before we get here. At least I don't think so, right? Kevin, are they? No, Kevin says no. All right. All right, some of our people are sick. It doesn't seem like anyone's specifically getting sick, though, and dying because of communion Unless someone laced the elements with COVID or something. So this, this passage really seems kind of irrelevant. And yet it's actually really relevant for us. It's profoundly relevant because it reminds us of the purpose of our gathering. The purpose of this meal. The purpose of our gathering and partaking together of this meal. When it comes to communion, there are these two errors that we need to avoid. The first error as a church that we need to avoid when it comes to communion is a very casual sort of cavalier attitude towards the meal. That we think of this meal just like any other meal. All right? There are churches who do this by adopting what's called open communion, whereby they just kind of invite anyone to, uh, who's present to partake of the meal. Whether you're a believer or not, whether you're baptized or not, whether you're under church discipline or not, it doesn't matter. There's no conditions whatsoever. If you're present, you can partake. That's called open uh, uh, communion. Right? This passage shows us why that sort of view is foolish. It's why we do what's historically called fencing the table each week. We say that communion is primarily for our spiritual family, but visitors are welcome to partake on certain conditions. Those conditions are, namely, they believe on Christ, that they've been baptized. If you want to know why we require that, we have a very lengthy blog on why we require baptism for communion. Hint. The church for all of history has required baptism before communion up until uh, just uh, the past 50, 60 years or so. Um, and that we require that they're not under discipline or walking in any unknown sin. So if you choose to take communion, 
Though you don't meet those conditions, don't say we didn't warn you, all right? It's your fault if you die today. That's error one, all right? To treat the meal so lightly, so cavalierly, so casually, you just avoid fencing the table altogether. The other error, though, is that we swing the pendulum uh, to the opposite end of the spectrum, and we fence the table in such a way, to such an extreme, that no one dare approach. To make it seem like this meal is only for those who are worthy, only for those who are good, only for those who have it all together, who've cleaned up their life, who've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever it might be, to make it seem like unless you've lived a sinless life, you can't partake. To, to kind of think that Paul is saying to examine yourself, and if we, in examining yourself you see any evidences of sin whatsoever, that you shouldn't take the meal. All right? In reality, the exact opposite is true. This meal isn't for the best. It's for those who admit that they're the worst. Remember, this passage isn't about being worthy, but rather taking it in a worthy manner. During the first generation of the Reformation, there was a catechism that was written for uh, Protestants. It was called the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism. And in question 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it asked this question, who should come to the Lord's table? Here's their answer. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. Notice that. When you examine yourselves, you shouldn't be pleased with yourself. That's the exact opposite response. You should be pleased with Christ, but displeased with yourself. You messed up this week. I messed up this week. We're wrecks. So those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but they don't wallow in that. They don't wallow in condemnation and shame, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So is that you? When the Heidelberg Catechism asks uh, who should come to the Lord's table, do you fit within the first category? The question isn't are you perfect, but rather do you run to Christ in the midst of those imperfections? So I want to end by telling a story to anyone who may be thinking, I'm not good enough to partake of communion. It's a story that um, I heard from a a Bible scholar named uh, D.A. Carson. And he tells this story. The setting is Egypt. Israel is in slavery. Moses has already shown up. Each of the first nine or so plagues have kind of decimated the world's greatest superpower. Egypt at this time is the world's superpower. And they've been absolutely destroyed by the first uh, of the plagues. And it's the night before the final plague, the, the death of the firstborn. And so two Jews are talking. We'll call them Carl and Dave. These good Jewish names. And they're talking the night before the first Passover. All right? They're talking before the, the plagues. And they're discussing all of the plagues that have, unleashed, uh, that have been unleashed over the past few days. And their talk then turns to the final plague and the warning of the death of the firstborn. And in this moment, it's very obvious from their conversation that, uh, that Dave is confident. He's trusting. He is, uh, he's hopeful. He's optimistic. But Carl is afraid. He is, uh, he's fearful, and Carl says, uh, the reason is, Dave, you have lots of sons. I only have one, my beloved Taylor, and uh, what if God strikes him down? I don't have anything then. 
So Dave asks him, did you take the blood of the lamb and did you smear it on the door? And Carl says, yes, but what if it doesn't work? And he's anxious nonetheless. So here are these two Jewish men. One is really confident, the other is really timid. Both of them have blood on their doors. So D.A. Carson asked this question, which of their sons were saved? The answer is both. Why is that? Because it isn't about the strength of their belief. It's about the strength of the blood. I share that with you this morning because there could be some of you in here thinking still, you don't feel worthy to take communion. And that's not the point of this text. Guess what? You aren't worthy to take communion in and of yourself. But if you're in Christ, he is worthy and you're in him. And so therefore, you can. The point of communion isn't our worthiness, it's Christ. Communion isn't powerful because you believe it to be so, because you hope it to be so. Communion isn't powerful because of some sort of private, subjective, sort of experiential thing. Communion is powerful because Christ is powerful, because of Christ's blood. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll actually turn our attention to communion this morning. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are uh, gracious and, uh, and kind. I thank you for the gift of, of communion. I pray that we might take it in a worthy manner. First off, that we would take it, that we wouldn't think that we are, because we are unworthy, because we're sinful, because we're depraved, because we're wretched, therefore we can't partake. But that we also wouldn't do so um, presumptuously. So I pray you would help us as we examine ourselves and discern the body this morning, that you might be glorified in this and that we might experience joy rather than judgment. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.